Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm Jason Shulman. We've got a great show for you today. My guest is Benjamin Summer, who teaches at the Jewish Theological Seminary. Here to talk about his new book, Revelation and Authority, Sinai in Jewish Scripture and Tradition, published in 2015 by Yale University Press. Ben, welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies. Thank you very much, Jason. Thank you for having me. Well, it's great to have you. So, Ben, the title of the book is Revelation and Authority. Well, what do you mean by those words, and how are they related? A revelation, I mean um, the idea that God reveals God's will to humanity or to a group of human beings. And by authority, I refer really to the authority of Jewish law, to the authority of Jewish tradition that, according to traditional Judaism, makes the, the, the halachic system, the Jewish legal system, binding on the Jewish people. The origin of the authority of Jewish tradition, the authority of Jewish law, comes from the fact that uh, it is believed in some sense to to have been revealed, in some sense to express or reflect or embody the will of God. And so the two terms are related because revelation leads to the authority of the Jewish tradition. Uh, The authority of Jewish law is based on revelation. And so to the extent that we believe that Jewish law um, and Jewish tradition have a claim on contemporary Jews or Jews from all generations, that belief is going to depend on what we think about revelation. Different ideas of revelation will create very different senses of the authority of Jewish tradition, even different ideas of what Jewish tradition is all about. So the, the book is really an examination of a theory of revelation that leads us to a particular view of Jewish tradition. Right. And you, so you, you talk about the, uh, is it stenographic theory of revelation? Um, you know, the idea, mm-hmm. right, the idea that, that someone was taking notes. And in that sense, there's a clear link between revelation and authority. But you're um, advocating the participatory theory of revelation. So tell us, what is that? And if that's the case, um, where does the authority come from? In the participatory theory of re- revelation, the uh, the role of the human beings, starting with Moses, wasn't simply to write down word for word, letter for letter, what God said, but rather the role of the human beings, of the Jewish people in Revelation, was more active. Revelation, in this point of view, from the point of view of, the, of what I'm calling the participatory model of Revelation, Revelation is more of a conversation. It's an act of communication, and both sides have input into the final product of revelation, or the final product, I should really say, of revelation. So in the participatory theory, it's not just that God said certain words, and Moses wrote them down, and those words are now fixed forever. Rather, God, in some way, outside of language, perhaps, revealed God's will to the Jewish people, and the Jewish people, starting with Moses, but going on into other generations, into the the present and into the future, the Jewish people then have to respond to that will, interpret that will, 
and you might say translate that will into a human language for their own community and for their own time. So in the participatory theory, we're getting the sort of more modern theory of revelation that one might assume, that, uh, that one might associate with a modern Jewish theologian like an Abraham Joshua. What I'm doing in the book is suggesting that actually the participatory theory has much, much deeper roots and that biblical authors themselves were suggesting that we think about a participatory theory, even as other biblical authors put forward more of a stenographic theory. Right. And so you're saying that, um, you know, thinkers like Heschel, Rosenzweig, um, their ideas are actually not so original. Uh, they actually go back a long time. Maybe you can tell us a little bit more about that. Right. One of the sentences that I've got in the book, in fact, is that um, the participatory theories, as I call them, of Abraham Joshua Heschel and Franz Rosenzweig are much less original than people might think. And we need to remember, I write in the book, that in theology, to say that somebody is not original, but rather is just restating an older idea from the tradition, is actually a great compliment. When I'm saying that Heschel's ideas are deeply rooted in the Bible itself, and therefore are not so tremendously original, that's a tremendous compliment to Heschel. What I'm saying is he's not making this up, he's simply passing on and making perhaps a little bit more recognizable, a little bit more obvious, a much, much older theory. But Heschel himself made that claim. Heschel wrote this brilliant, brilliant three-volume work in Hebrew that argues that his sort of approach to Revelation is much more deeply rooted in, in excuse me, in rabbinic literature. He shows cases of Talmudic and Midrashic texts from 1,500 years ago that are already suggesting that Revelation involved a dialogue between God and the Jewish people. What I'm doing in my book is I'm taking Heschel's three-volume work on rabbinic literature as expressing a participatory theory one step further. I'm suggesting that when you go to the Torah itself, you can find um, you can find elements of the participatory theory. You can find textual oddities that are encouraging us as readers to start thinking about the extent to which Revelation involved dialogue rather than simply stenography. What do, what does it mean that Heschel and Rosenzweig and, and maybe you yourself are liberal theologians? What what, what does the liberal in that uh, in that phrase mean? That's a very interesting question, and I want to start off by pointing out that in some sense, I think that you can look at my book as an example of liberal theology, and I think that, that obviously that's true of Heschel as well, and of Rosenzweig, but in another sense, I think that much of Heschel's writing and a bit of Rosenzweig is actually somewhat anti-liberal theology, and that's certainly true of my book as well, but I'll start off with the liberal side. Um, by liberal, I think what we mean is two things. Number one, we don't believe that the Bible consists entirely of words that came from heaven. We don't believe that the Bible is simply a recording of words that God spoke and Moses and perhaps other prophets later on wrote down. Rather, we think that the Bible has a very significant human element. Following Rosenzweig, I would even go as far as to say that perhaps even all the words of the Bible are written by human beings who are responding to and interpreting uh, God's revelation. Now, if that's the case, that the Bible has a very significant human aspect, inevitably it follows that the Bible is not perfect. Everything that is human is to some degree flawed. 
And if the Bible is the result of communication between the divine and human beings, then the Bible will reflect the flaws of the human beings. This tells me that I don't have to accept everything in the Bible as being 100% true. If there's a human element in the Bible, it can't all be 100% true. Furthermore, if there's a human element in the Bible, and this gets us, gets us, I think, to the second element of what liberal means, especially in a Jewish theological context, if that's the case, then the tradition that comes out of the Bible isn't set in stone forever. It would make sense that if human beings produce the specifics of the laws of Jewish people that we find in the Torah and later in the Talmud, then human beings can continue to some small degree in each generation to modify those laws. We can continue interpreting the revelation of God's will that began at Mount Sinai, but didn't necessarily end at Mount Sinai. So by liberal, I mean that, um, that Jews today, Jewish communities today, Jewish authorities today, are able to modify Jewish law. This has been most obvious in the late 20th century and the early 21st century in areas having to do with gender and sexuality, but there can be other areas as well in which observant Jewish communities may over time come to the realization that there's a need to modify the, the law to more fully recognize or embody the will of a God who is both just and compassionate. That, that's what I mean by liberal. Uh, before I go on to the anti-liberal side, let me just ask you, Jason, if you wanted to follow up on the liberal side of things. Go ahead. Well, at the same time, this book can also be seen, I think, as rather a bit of an anti-liberal theology, or it's opposed to some aspects of, aspects of liberal theology. If liberal theology, whether in contemporary Judaism or contemporary Christianity, we mean the belief, let's say, that scripture and tradition, whether Jewish tradition or Christian tradition, are full of metaphors, they're speaking entirely in metaphors, and they're not referring to any actual historical event. The divine being spoken of in these texts, let's say, is, is an idea or an ideal or a metaphor for our best human selves, but not for an actual living being who communicates with human beings. If that's what we mean by liberal, then certainly my book is very much an example of uh, a polemic against liberal theology. What I'm arguing in the book is that we can believe that there really was an event at Sinai. In some sense, the whole Jewish people, as Jewish tradition since the book of Deuteronomy has taught, was present at that event at Mount Sinai. And a real being, a real God, communicated the will that the Jewish people should observe certain laws as a way of expressing our love and our loyalty and our obligation to God. The extent that I'm making that claim, that, that's the cent a central claim of the book, I think that many people would see my book as being actually rather um, anti-liberal. That is, part of what the book is doing is I'm arguing for a very robust notion of the authority of Jewish law. I do think that Jewish law can and should be alterable. It can be changeable. And it's a wonderful thing that in our own generation, we've seen some important changes in Jewish law. But that law remains, in fact, law, not a statement of preferences or a palette of potential choices for a person's personal uh, lifestyle. No, law means law. You have to observe it. That's what it means to be a Jew. Even if the law is changeable, the law is based on the revelation of God's will, and therefore it is something that's obligatory. 
To the extent that I'm saying that, and again, that's a very important part of the book, I think that the book really is, is something of an anti-liberal statement. And I think when you read Heschel in particular, you see something very similar. Heschel, as you go from page to page in many of his works, he moves between a, a criticism of people too far to the left and then a criticism of people too far to the right. But he does have a very clear criticism, especially of the reform movement, uh, for not taking seriously the obligatory nature of Jewish law. Something similar, I think, is also true of Rosenzweig, um, who is who sees himself as reacting, I think, to some of the excesses of Jewish liberalism and also Protestant liberalism in the early 20th century and late 19th century. So my book is sort of trying to be, in, a, um, in some ways, a very liberal book, but in some ways a very small-c conservative book as well. Liberal in its, the tradition as changeable, conservative, small-c conservative, um, or even perhaps capital-c conservative in a Jewish context, in that it insists on the authority of Jewish law. All right. Let's talk about chapter one. It's called Artifact or Scripture. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, when you look at the title, you kind of think this is going to be an, an or proposition. But in the end, you, you kind of come up with a different answer. So, so tell us what's going on there. Well, by Artifact or Scripture, I'm talking about two ways of understanding the Bible. And here it doesn't matter whether we're really talking about uh, the Tanakh, the Jewish Bible, or as Christians call it, the Old Testament, or the whole Christian Bible, including both the Tanakh and the New Testament, really the same model to be able to that matter to the Quran. Um, it's possible to look at religious documents such as the Tanakh or the, the Christian Bible or the Quran simply as the product of a group of human beings writing at a certain number of places and times. In that case, it's an artifact, historical artifact, that reflects the teachings of human sages and reflects the places and times in which it was composed. It's also possible to look at these texts as scripture, as a text that has, in some sense, some sort of a divine origin, perhaps mixed with human origins as well, but it's a a text that reflects the will of God for a particular group of people, and therefore it's a text that tells us how a group of people should live their lives, how they bring meaning to their lives, how they form a community. Now, of course, within traditional Judaism or within Christianity, the Bible is viewed as scripture, as reflecting God's will, and therefore it's viewed as being different from all other texts in, 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 the, in the world. Modern biblical critics at universities and even at seminaries, on the other hand, look at the Bible as a historical artifact as something that was produced by a particular group of people in the land of Canaan, um, that is on the the very, very western edge of Asia, uh, on the shores of the Mediterranean Sea, in a certain set of centuries. And for for those scholars who are looking at it only as artifact, it's interesting for the same reason that any cultural artifact is interesting, for the same reason that the poems, uh, the epic poems of Homer are interesting, or that a short story or an essay from last week's New Yorker might be interesting. The question is, can we look at the Bible both as artifact and as scripture? As a religious person, I want to look at the Bible as scripture. As a modern person who strives to be intellectually honest, I can see that modern biblical criticism, modern biblical scholarship has really illuminated the writings in the Bible so incredibly well that the claims of modern biblical critics are compelling. Uh, the explanations that they give for the meanings for the origin text are really quite convincing. Um, what I'm suggesting is that it's possible, not easy, 
um, not not uh, not free of difficulty at all, but it's possible to look at the Bible both as artifact and as scripture, to accept that it's it has a divine side and therefore speaks to us in a way that demands attention and demands a, a serious response, while also acknowledging that it has a human side and that understanding the Bible as the ancient Near Eastern text that it really is, or the anthology of ancient Near Eastern texts that it really is, both of those can illuminate the Bible. In fact, understanding the Bible as an artifact, using the tools of modern biblical criticism, actually can really enrich the way that we understand the Bible as scripture. It can make it harder. It can trouble our way of looking at the Bible as scripture. But ultimately, I think that this is a religion that is a more honest religion. And I think a religion that's somewhat more flexible, more subtle, more realistic, and more appropriate for a modern human being. Right. I want to spend a little bit of time on chapter two. Uh, it's called What Happened at Sinai. Um, so tell us very briefly, um, what sort of text do you read very closely? Um, and maybe give us sort of just a brief overview of source criticism and, and what that is, how you use them. And then tell us about these two poles, the maximalist and the minimalist approaches. Great. Yeah, chapter two is really the heart of the book. Uh, the article from close to 20 years ago that the book really grows out of uh, is a shorter version of what is now chapter two in the book. And, and in, in chapter two, I think what's sort of interesting and, and a little bit uh, original is that in chapter two, I do very close readings of biblical texts, which is normal. I'm a professor of Bible. I'm, you know, um, I'm a biblical critic. I'm a member of the Society for Biblical Literature. That's what I'm supposed to do for a living is do close readings of biblical texts. But I also do close readings of later Jewish texts, of rabbinic texts in that same chapter, of medieval texts, and uh, of some modern Jewish theological texts. So I'm doing something a little bit different from regular biblical criticism as I'm putting ancient texts, medieval texts, and modern texts in dialogue with each other, and I'm really not paying much attention to the boundaries that, um, to, to the boundaries that modern academic studies have tended to put up between uh, the study of ancient Judaism, the study of medieval Judaism, the study of modern Jewish theology. I'm saying that all these texts belong to the same canon, whether a biblical text from 2,800 years ago or a theological text by a modern theologian just written 50 years ago, they're all part of the same Jewish canon, and they should be discussed together. When I read the biblical texts, I'm also reading them very much as a modern biblical critic. There is a very well-known theory called the documentary hypothesis that claims that the five books of Moses, which Jews often call the Torah, the is sometimes called the Pentateuch, that the five books of Moses were put together, not Moses, but much later than the time of, of, the, uh, of Moses, um, and they're put together from four main blocks of material. These four blocks probably existed in written form on their own. They were probably on different scrolls in ancient Israel. At some point, a group of editors put them together to form the book, or maybe we should really say the anthology, that is the five books of Moses. Now, from the point of view of traditional Judaism or traditional Christianity, this theory is often regarded as heresy, but I don't think it has to right. be heretical, and I don't think that it has to be threatening to traditional Judaism or, for that matter, to traditional Christianity. By looking at these four documents separately, and in particular, by looking at the way these four documents portray or remember or perceive the event of Revelation at Mount Sinai, 
I think that we can begin to recover a vivid theological debate in ancient Israel. These four documents agree that something happened at Mount Sinai that was crucially important in creating the covenantal relationship between God and the nation Israel. They agree that the result of this revelation of this event was a law that the Israelites have to obey, but they disagree on precisely what the law is. They also disagree a bit on how the law came to be. The book of Deuteronomy especially, which is one of the four sources, wants to say that the law came directly from heaven. So the book of Deuteronomy gives us what I call in that chapter a maximalist view of the Torah's authority. It really is all written by God. The laws come from heaven, and therefore not only do we have to obey them, but the extent to which we can change the law might be limited. Some of the other texts, this is especially true of what we Bible scholars call the Elohim or E-text back in the book of Exodus, has a very different view. At times, it's hinting at something like the view in Deuteronomy. It's hinting that the law comes entirely from heaven. But at other times, it hints that actually what came from heaven was an overwhelming sense of God's command, something like a gigantic sort of thunder, but not a lot of specific laws, and therefore it was up to Moses and Moses' successors among the prophets and sages in Israel and in the Jewish people, it was up to them to translate that tremendous sense of God's command into the specific commandments, uh, the specific laws that we find in the Jewish legal system. And in that case, we get much more of a participatory theory. What's interesting is that the e-text doesn't really allow us to decide between those two theories. It gives us what I would call a maximalist theory, some hints that it really all comes from heaven, but it also gives us many hints of a more minimalist theory, that all that came from heaven was maybe even a nonverbal command that Moses and Moses' successors had to then translate into human language. Uh, and that would, that's what I would call the minimalist theory. Interestingly, In modern Jewish thought, you can find both theories. In orthodoxy, you can find the maximalist theory. In conservatism and reform, you can find a minimalist theory. The e-text back in the book of Exodus doesn't allow us to to choose between them. Both of them have a claim on our attention, and both of them might be, in some sense, correct, or at least something that we should regard as being correct, or debate. um, uh, um, at least we should debate the the claims of of both of those sides of, of that debate. Uh, or of that argument. So we get both maximalist and minimalist approaches in the book of Exodus itself, in a different way in another of the texts in Exodus and Leviticus, in what we call the P or priestly text, we also get a mixture of of views that's sort of in between. It's not maximalist. It recognizes that um, the law may not have come in fully linguistic form, um, and so it's got something of a minimalist point of view, but it doesn't it doesn't focus so much just on that minimalist point of view. So you've got a number of different uh, different theological voices in the Torah itself, in the five books of Moses. Some putting forth a maximalist, some putting forth a minimalist, and some putting forth a mixed view of what happened at Revelation in Sinai. In the rest of that chapter, I trace the maximalist and the minimalist points of view into later Jewish thought. You see in the Talmud that both points of view are expressed. The more common one is the maximalist point of view. 
but the minimalist point of view as a minority opinion is present in Talmudic and Midrashic literature. You go into the Middle Ages, um, you can find commentators among the classical medieval rabbinic commentators who take each point of view. You look at Maimonides, and Maimonides in some of his writings sounds very maximalist, but in his more subtle and esoteric um, philosophical writings intended for a smaller audience, I think he's very, very clearly enunciating a very minimalist point of view. And you go right into modern Jewish thought, um, into the present, these two points of view are still being debated. What I'm suggesting in this chapter is that that debate itself is a sacred activity. The book of Exodus, the Torah, wants us to have that debate. It doesn't seem so important to the book of Exodus that we conclude the debate. What's more important is that we engage in that debate, and in fact, Jewish sages have been engaging in that debate from the time of the Bible right into the present. At Sinai, there was not only revelation, but also law-giving, right? So, mm-hmm. so if one tends towards the minimalist position, uh, what, what are the implications for law? Um, you know, is there sort of a limit to innovating Jewish law? I think that the minimalist point of view in both biblical and rabbinic sources, as I'm describing it, especially in chapter two of the book, still says that revelation is law-giving. You can imagine lots of other models for revelation. Revelation um, of, a, of a God to human beings or a deity to human beings need not involve law-giving. What's fascinating is that all four of the sources in the Torah all four of these sources, J, E, P, and D, as we call them in the documentary hypothesis, all four of them do tell us revelation was law-giving. There are other ways you can imagine law-giving, but frankly, the Torah is telling us, all four theological voices in the Torah are telling us that those, way of imagining, those ways of imagining revelation as something other than law-giving are just not Jewish ways of imagining law-giving. So, for example, Martin Buber, a very famous a uh, theologian in the 20th century, argues that revelation is not law-giving. He's got a very, very interesting view of what revelation can be from the point of view of J, E, P, and D, the Torah's four authors. I think we have to say that Buber's model of law-giving is, uh, I'm sorry, Buber's model of revelation is simply not a Jewish model of revelation. So on the one hand, even for the minimalist voices, let's say for the e-document, um, Revelation is law-giving in a, in a way that involves a dialogue between God and the Jewish people, but it still is law-giving. For, for E, it's very clear that the law is, at the, is absolutely at the heart of the covenant between God and the Jewish people. In fact, in, in some ways, the E document is the most legalistic of all the four documents in the Torah. But an implication, I think, of E's model is that, well, if the specifics of the law were written by human beings in response to God's nonverbal command, then we can readily imagine that the specifics of the law might be subject to revision. If human beings wrote the actual laws that we find in the book of Exodus um, or elsewhere in the Torah, then one can imagine that human beings could continue to write the laws, could continue to rewrite the laws, as indeed has always happened throughout Jewish history, um, not only in the, you know, in the last 50 years, but throughout Jewish legal history, sages and communities have sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously changed Jewish law. What we learned from my book, I think, is that that's perfectly okay. That was part of the system from the very, very beginning. But the change, the fact that we 
Jewish communities today can change the specifics of the law doesn't mean that the legal system as a whole is anything less than authoritative. So we can find lots of examples within the Torah itself where there's a debate about what the law should be, um, but there's really no debate in the Torah about whether there should be a law, whether there should be a binding law that all Jews have to observe. Uh, we're running a little bit low on time, so I want to ask about authenticity. Uh, what does it mean in the context of, of this analysis? Well, part of what I'm arguing here is for the authenticity of modern theologies of dialogical revelation. In other words, the theology that I call participatory, the idea that Jewish tradition, starting from the Torah itself and going right into the present day, is a result not simply of, you might say, a downward vector from heaven to earth, where our job as human beings is just to passively accept, but rather that the the product of revelation, the Torah and the whole Jewish tradition that comes out of it, is the result of vectors that go both down to up and up to down. God talks to us, and we can respectfully talk in response to God. That That model... We usually associate with theologians who are sometimes rightly or wrongly called liberal, uh, especially Heschel and Rosenzweig. We might mention Rabbi Louis Jacobs from uh, from Great Britain as another example of this. Actually, in Christianity, you get theologians like a Paul Tillich uh, who comes to mind, who expresses something a little bit similar, although I think it goes a little further to the left than Heschel goes uh, or than Rosenzweig goes. We usually think of those as modern theologians. What I'm arguing is that those modern theologians in Jewish and Christian tradition have a deep, deep authenticity because they're simply the modern restatement. Their works are simply the modern restatements of a kind of theology that goes back to the very, very beginning, a theology that's even older than the Torah itself. Um, the E-Doc expresses this sort of theology in a slightly different way. The P-Document expresses this kind of theology and E and P are older than the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, the Torah, was created by combining E, P, and these other two, J and E, uh, J and D, to create what we know as the Torah. If authenticity means a, a um, an opinion, uh, if, if authenticity means that an opinion comes not simply from uh, the imagination of a modern theologian or a modern thinker but comes from much, much more ancient texts that are already revered, well, then the theology of Heschel has a very, very deep authenticity because Heschel is, at, um, at the most basic level, he's really restating much, much older theologies and thinking carefully through the implications of those older theologies for the modern world. But he's not making these theologies up. What he's doing is he's finding an older theology and putting it into terms that are appropriate for a modern audience. Mm -hmm. Well, Ben, we've taken up a lot of your time, so any parting thoughts you'd like to share, and what are you working on next? Uh, what I'm working on at the moment, actually, is a commentary on the Book of Psalms, uh, which I've been working on for, for years, and I really, I really need to finish it up. So actually, whereas this book um, on Revelation Party was a very atypical work of biblical scholarship because of the way that I was creating a dialogue between biblical and post-biblical voices, and especially between biblical text and modern Jewish theologians, my Psalms commentary will be something of a, of a more traditional piece of biblical scholarship. I'm interested in reading the book of Psalms as a, um, as a set of poems, as a set of liturgies, as, uh, as a set of texts to be accompanied by rituals, and understanding how they function 
in the ancient world, in, in ancient Israel, but also with an eye to, to seeing how they can be relevant for the concerns of modern Jews as well. That commentary will be published uh, by the Jewish Publication Society. Actually, it's going to be in five volumes. I'm editing the five-volume set, and I'm preparing right now the, uh, the, the first volume, uh, which I'm writing myself, and four other scholars are, are writing the other four volumes. Ben, that sounds like a great project. I want to thank you for being on the show today. The book is Revelation and Authority, Sinai in Jewish Scripture and Tradition, published in 2015 by Yale University Press. The author is Benjamin Summer. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thanks very much, Jason. I've enjoyed this very much.